You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Tom Cotton, the arch-conservative Republican senator from Arkansas, released a statement Sunday after the violence in Charlottesville. statement went like this. White supremacists who claim to take America back only betray their own ignorance of what makes America so special, our country's founding recognition of the natural rights of all mankind, and commitment to the defense of the rights of all Americans. These contemptible little men do not speak for what is just, noble, and best about America. There is a lot a person could take issue with here, particularly a thinking person, not the Republican senator or Republican voter. For example, our nation's founders did not recognize the rights of all mankind. They only recognized enslaved Africans and their enslaved descendants as three-fifths of a person. They viewed women as property, not citizens, and they couldn't recognize the humanity of Native Americans, much less their rights. So yeah, our founders felt short of demonstrating a commitment to the rights of, quote-unquote, all Americans. Or maybe it depends on what the meaning of the word all is in this context. But Cotton, that asshole, Senator Cotton, managed to do what that asshole, Donald Trump, pointedly couldn't bring himself to do, promptly condemned the drooling assholes waving Nazi flags who gathered in Charlottesville to unite the Reich, excuse me, unite the right, over the weekend. Cotton, who never met a racist, in effect, Republican policy he couldn't get behind, managed to condemn white supremacists. He called white supremacy what it is, or what it is now, profoundly un-American. I was off the grid most of the weekend, and on Sunday afternoon when I was reading the news about Charlottesville on a slow train back to what's left of our civilization, the shuffle feature on iTunes decided to pump this into my earbuds. That, of course, is God Save the People from the 1973 film Godspell, music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Like almost everyone of my generation, I was in a production of Godspell in high school, and I teared up listening to that, not because memory lane, but because Jesus H. fucking Christ, it sure feels like we, the people, need saving right about now. But God ain't going to save us. Because there is no God, so no deus ex machina. We're going to have to save ourselves from white nationalists, from neo-Nazis, from straight white male terrorists. And not just the white nationalists and neo-Nazis and white supremacists marching in the streets or mowing down good and decent people with their cars, rest in peace, Heather Hare, but from the white supremacists and nationalists and neo-Nazis in the fucking White House from Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka, Stephen Miller, and Jeff Sessions. But somehow only one white supremacist, only one white nationalist, only one fucking Nazi lost his job this weekend. Cole White, one of the many young men who traveled to Charlottesville 
to wave Nazi flags and Confederate flags and flash the Hitler salute. He was fired over the weekend after he was identified by the Twitter account, Yes, You're Racist. He immediately lost his job. The hot dog stand where he worked fired his racist ass. So Donald Trump, the president of the United States, doesn't have the courage or decency to do what the owners of a hot dog stand in California did. Fire the fucking white supremacists on his staff. Bannon, Gorka, Miller must be fired. And Trump, that racist piece of shit motherfucker, needs to be impeached already. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions, lots of my answers. And on the Magnum subscription ad-free edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Dr. Samantha Joel joins us from the University of Utah to talk about dating and breaking up and how we make those decisions. That's on the Magnum, all coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I am a 25-year-old gay man living in the Southeast. And I'm in a very happy, open, monogamous relationship. So me and my partner, we both uh, travel for work and we both sleep with other men separately uh, and together. So it's a huge turn on for us to watch each other fuck other guys or be fucked by other guys. My concern here is I am typically more top verse and he's more bottom verse. And it works out really well with us one-on-one with me topping him. But every now and then I want a bottom for him. And I really get turned on watching him top other guys, especially watching how well they enjoy him topping. But the issue is his penis is massive. And every time he tries to stick it in, it just hurts. And, um, he does sometimes have an issue getting it up, uh, but w- when he does get it up, it, it, it's hard to get in, and, and then he goes soft, and then, and then it's just a big old disaster as far as sex. So I guess my question is, is what can I do? I mean, I've, I've tried uh, using toys. I've tried bottoming for smaller guys, and then slowly going up in size. I've tried sleeping around with a bunch of other guys, bottoming for them trying to make myself loose for lack of a better word, but I just can't seem to get there. I've, I've tried butt plugs and I just want to get to a point where I can bottom for my, for my partner and actually have it feel good, but it's just not feeling okay. I have talked to him and he said he's completely fine for the course of our relationship. If forever that I just talked to him and he just bottoms and that's great. Um, and that's great. He's open-minded to that, but there are moments where I do want to bottom so what can I do, Dan? What can I do to make myself loose, for lack of a better word? Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Listening to you rattle off your situation, waiting to get to the problem, happy, 25 years old, open, monogamous. You love watching him fuck and get fucked by other guys. He loves watching you fuck and get fucked by other guys. And you love this dude. And then you get to the problem and it's penis too big. My lovely, lovable so sexually compatible boyfriend has a massive cock. You poor dear. Let me know where to send the flowers. Here's what you're probably doing wrong. You're getting out there and you're sitting on dicks of 
gradually increasing size. I'd love to know how you line updates, particularly in that order, but good on you. And you're using butt plugs and toys, but I think the mistake you're making is not using those toys, and I would urge you to go in the toy direction, not the gradually increasing dicks selection from Grinder. You're not using those toys during the sex session with your boyfriend where he's going to get his massive penis in you. You're probably playing with toys, playing with a butt plug, and then a couple days later, you're trying to sit down on the boyfriend's giant wiener. And in the interim, your butt has tightened the fuck back up. You can loosen up during a session, a, a toy session where you play uh, and you put in toys of increasing size in you and your sphincters and ass will relax. And then you will be ready to be entered by the biggest toy in the house, which is the toy that your boyfriend brought to the relationship. Uh, but if you play with toys and then circle back to the boyfriend days later, your butt will have... Tighten the fuck back up. And good, that's what you want. You want your butt to tighten the fuck back up in between fuck sessions. So next time you want the boyfriend to fuck you, roll around with the boyfriend, play with toys with the boyfriend, and then the last minute, switch to the boyfriend's massive cock. And once again, let us know where to send the sympathy cards and flowers. Hi, I'm a 44-year-old straight female. Um, I have a new boyfriend who's 28 and been dating for about three months. Um, We're both sexually experienced. We don't live together, but I sleep at his place most every night. Um, Initially, we met on Tinder as a friends with benefits situation, but we just kept hanging out and eventually decided that it it seemed to have developed into a relationship and we have um, a great time together. We get along. I have two questions, though. Um, The first is, he is very large and quite literally barely fits in my mouth. He loves oral and I love doing it, but keeping my mouth open wide enough for long enough to make him come seems almost impossible. Um, I've used my hands for additional stimulation, but I want to be able to please him orally. Um, Do you have any advice that could potentially help me? Um, I really want that to be um, a part of our sexual experience. And right now I kind of feel like I'm failing at it. (laughs) My next question is um, when we have sex, I kind of noticed that he only seems to get off if I appear to be, in pain, not like excruciating pain, but like just a little bit of pain. Um, the first time I noticed it, um, I sort of discounted it. The next time I kind of played along and see and sort of acted like I was in pain, which having sex with him does not cause me pain. It causes me pleasure. Um, but when I kind of rolled with that, he seemed to get off on it a lot more and uh, seemed to be quite satisfied. So I am wondering if since, you know, he's kind of a well-endowed man is um, maybe most of the women he's been with, you know, uh, appear to be in pain when they have sex with him. I don't know. I don't experience that with him. Um, But we're building a good relationship uh, based on things that don't revolve around sex. But sex is definitely pretty important to both of us. So at some point, I'm worried that my asking skills may fail me. I get too much into the moment, enjoy it too much, and, and then he's unable to get off because I don't appear to be in pain. So my second question is, what is the best way to make sure that his needs are being met? Um, let me also add that he's a very physically affectionate person and gentle. Um, so this isn't this pain thing, I think, is, is just strictly weird to hold around him getting off during sex. Um, it, he's not the type of person who... Um, is rough with me in any other aspect of our, our relationship or our life. He's actually really sweet. Um, I'm open to any ideas to make sure that he's enjoying sex as much as I am. Any advice would be super terrific. His dick may be so big and your mouth may be so small that there's no way to finesse 
the giving him a blowjob thing that you're just going to have to use your hands, use your mouth, ride up and down on his dick with your wet and sloppy hands, use your mouth and your lips and your tongue on the head of his dick. Take him in your mouth for as long – take him – take his dick in your mouth for as long as you can, as often as you can and then give yourself breaks and just sort of roll with it. And eventually he will come from that blowjob that involves your hands and your tongue and your lips and some time in your mouth but not the whole time in your mouth. And there's just no way around that. If his dick is really as big as you say that it is, it's just a physical limitation and you're going to have to roll with it and make accommodations that allow you to be comfortable while still allowing him to enjoy the blowjob that you're giving him. As to the other part of your question, the fact that you've noticed that if you appear to be in pain, he gets off more quickly or more thunderously, that could be an association. That's actually a smart leap that you made there that you know he's got a really big dick and maybe with most of the women he's been with over the course of his life, there was some pain uh, – but pleasurable pain, you know, sex and pain sometimes go together. Uh, there was some, you know, wincing and, you know, deep breathing and obvious having to adjust to the size of his massive dick. And maybe that created an association in his mind between pleasing a woman, pleasuring a woman and, you know, his giant dick and, you know, her wanting his dick so badly that she's willing to endure a little bit of pain and come through it. Erotic pain, not horrible pain. Or he could have a little bit of a sadistic streak. You say he's a really nice guy and would never hurt you and is very tender and loving in every other aspect. A lot of people out there with sadistic streaks <laughs> overcompensate in every other area of their lives because they can feel a little guilty about the fact that inflicting pain on someone else in a consensual neurotic way arouses them. So there will be some overcompensation or they're just legitimately a straight up nice person who has this particular kink and it's not – indicative of any character flaw or dark personality trait. It just is what it is. How do you give him that if it's not particularly painful for you? Well, you use your acting skills, such as they are, and dirty talk. Use your words. Tell him it hurts and moan a little bit, but it's worth it, that it's causing you some discomfort. Not that you should say it that way during sex. That's not particularly a sexy way of saying it. It's causing you some discomfort, but you really love his dick and you want his dick and you're going to power through it for his dick because you love his dick so much that even if it is a bit of a trial to get it all the way in you, you want to come through it. You want it. You want it so bad you're willing to suffer for it. That should do the trick. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 22-year-old um, bisexual woman living in California, and I've been going out with my boyfriend for almost eight months now. And um, recently, we were at a bar having a few drinks and playing bingo, and he won. And um, they brought him on stage. And we were, This is a bar that we frequent. Everyone knows us there. The owner loves him. So I got on the stage and I always ask him to take off his shirt and stuff. And they usually like ask me if it's okay. And I'm like, oh, I don't care. It's just his shirt, whatever. And they always think that he's like the hottest thing ever. But like he took it a little too far and kind of like showed his ass to everyone. And I immediately, I was drunk, walked out of the room pissed because he's, he's actually leaving for the military. And I just, I was already emotional. And I was just trying to get my mind up and have a good time. And I just felt like that was a bit too far especially since they usually, they're always like, oh, it's okay with your girlfriend, you know, and they didn't do that. So, but I was just frustrated because, you know, I, I don't know, I just felt hurt. So then I went outside to cool off and he came back. He came and then he took him a good 10 minutes to come out there and he came out there and he was like, what the, what's wrong with you? Like, it's just an ass. And I was like, give me a second. He came back again 
And he's like, it's just an ass, like, calm down, everything's fine. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, like, I'm drunk right now, like, I feel hurt. Like, I, I wasn't expecting that, like, I'm having an emotional time right now. Like, I just feel like that was too much. And we just spiraled into this crazy argument. And then I saw that he posted it on social media on, like, this Snapchat app. And I asked him today if he would delete it. And he ignored my first text. And I said, I was like, please delete it. I love you. And then he was like, okay. I'm just a little scared because my boyfriend does things sometimes when he's drunk, not inappropriate really, just like some things that he would normally do when sober because he knows there's certain things. I'm pretty open, but he knows there's certain things I'm not okay with. And I'm just scared that um, I don't want him to think that I'm not the cool girlfriend um, because I'm really trying to support him in this decision that he's making. We're going to be long distance for a while. I just want to be supportive, but I also want him to understand my boundaries. And I think he does, but, I know that I was drunk, but did I handle this incorrectly? Did I maybe push this too far? Was it was it a good decision for us to just forget about this and to move forward and keep loving each other? I just want to make sure that I'm not overanalyzing this. The charitable interpretation is you're going to be going long distance. He's headed off to the military and you're going to miss that ass. And in that moment, you were kind of sensitive to what you were about to lose, which was his presence, his constant presence, being together a lot. And seeing his ass up there on the stage and everybody appreciating it, just sandpapered a nerve that you weren't aware was there and a nerve he wasn't aware was there. And he didn't do that maliciously. The uncharitable interpretation is that uh, you think you own his ass and that it's your property and you get to decide when and where he shakes it or shows it. And you don't. If the genders were reversed here, if you were a mail caller complaining about his girlfriend getting up on stage at a bingo night in a bar where in the past she has shown off a little bit and she was inspired that night to show off just a little bit more and you blew up and went outside and pouted and got this upset and and remained this upset about it. I and probably most people listening would be jumping down your throat about the fact that you don't own your fucking girlfriend, that her body is hers and if she was inspired by alcohol or the sexiness of the moment to show off a little bit not just for everyone in the room but also for you because you were sitting out there that isn't something that you should be upset about that isn't something that you have a right to be upset about because you don't own her that would be the gender flipped advice and interpretation here so i would challenge you to let this go to chalk it up to nerves and vague, free-floating sadness about his impending departure and not to hold on to this conflict, not to grip it. He didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. You got upset. You were overwhelmed by feelings. And I think they were misplaced feelings. The only thing you're doing wrong is continuing to hammer away at this or to hold on to this so tightly. He didn't do it maliciously. You guys hadn't had a conversation about how you're fine with him taking his shirt off in a bar, but not fine with him showing an ass, his ass, in a bar. And so there was no betrayal here of any articulated agreement between you two about who else gets to see how much of what. You're going to have to forgive him and let it fucking go. And if you feel yourself getting tense or upset again, it's just transferred. Just tell yourself that you're getting tense and upset about his departure and some part of you is engineering a conflict because you want reassurance from him probably that when he goes, he's not going to disappear. Sometimes we pick fights with our partners or lovers because subconsciously we need reassurance that they're not going anywhere, that they're going to be there for us, that we're still the most important people to them. 
And maybe that moment in the bar when he showed his ass to everyone, you worried that maybe you weren't the most important person to him. And it wasn't about showing his ass or taking his shirt off. It was about that worry inside of you and the showing the ass. It wasn't so much the showing the ass, but the showing the ass was the trigger that unleashed this flood of emotion that was about fear of abandonment or losing him. There are many different ways to interpret or understand or read your reaction. Again, the least charitable is you think you own his ass. You don't own his ass. You are important to him. You are still important to him. He has offered you reassurances, probably the reassurances that you were seeking subconsciously when you engineered this conflict, when you allowed yourself or when you didn't allow yourself, you legitimately got this upset. But I don't think you were upset about the ass. I think you were upset about the loss. Not the loss of his love, not the loss of this relationship, but the loss of FaceTime and face-to-ass time because he's off to the military. He's off for, for a tour of duty. You're not going to be around each other for a while. And that is making you sad and perhaps easily triggered, to use that overused word. Chalk it up to that. Stop creating conflict in your relationship where none should exist. And every once in a while, we should all do this every once in a while, remind ourselves that we don't own our partner's bodies. And if you still are upset about your partner showing his ass to a room full of people, check out my husband's Instagram account. Perhaps you and I should start a support group. Hey, Dan. Uh, This is a straight-ish woman calling from the South. Uh, I am in an LTR with a wonderful man. We see each other about every two months or so. Um, He is estranged from his wife, and they will be going through a divorce here in the coming months. My question uh, is about etiquette. My partner is going through a particularly rough period in his life right now. He's got a best friend who's been in a traumatic accident uh, and is in a coma in the hospital. Um, And the general anxiety and stress and sadness about a divorce um, is, of course, something he's also contending with. Um, What I'd like to do is I would like to send him a care package um, to let him know that he's not alone and that I'm here for him and that kind of thing. The problem is, he and his estranged wife live together. And while I have sent him packages to their home in the past, uh, this was before I knew that they were living together. Um, and in the months since, she's actually found out about me. And so I, I don't feel that it is respectful, appropriate um, to be sending things to her home. So my question is, is there a way for me to send him something um, that does not violate his wife in any way. Um, I thought of perhaps sending him something to his job. Uh, the problem is that he's a server at a restaurant um, and he's there in the evenings usually. And I don't know how out he is to his coworkers about his marriage or, or, or me or any of that. And so I'm concerned about um, perhaps outing him or doing something that would otherwise perhaps jeopardize his job. I suppose I could just call them and ask them. But again, I'm not sure um, whether that's appropriate or not. Anyway, maybe you or some of your listeners have some advice. You could contact the restaurant where he works and ask if you can tell them you're a friend, you'd like to send him something, ask if it would be all right for you to send it to his place of employment. If his employer, if his manager is going to pass off a package to him, they're not going to grill him about who sent the package and why. They're unlikely to pry out of him the fact that he has a girlfriend long distance and that he's in the process of initiating divorce proceedings with his wife. That's not a conversation that grows out of, hey, you got a package here at work. So I think that's safe. If you are concerned, though, 
if that would be an unwelcome intrusion into his workspace, if you worry that he might react negatively to that, ask him where he likes to go after work, what restaurants he likes to go to. Call that restaurant. Buy him a tab. Send him an email. Send him a text telling him you wish you were there. You wish you could take him to dinner personally. But since you can't, you're taking him out for dinner from afar and let him know that you put 100 bucks under his name at this restaurant for him to waltz in and retrieve and have a nice relaxing meal with a buddy or a friend or his wife all on his own. You can also send him gifts online that he can retrieve online, which can all be handled with a couple of emails. There are lots of ways to send him prezzies and let him know that you're thinking of him that don't involve shipping care packages necessarily to his home or his workplace. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old cis queer bi guy calling from Canada. My partner and I have been together for almost seven years and married for three. We have an awesome relationship. It's open, honest, caring, and equitable. Unfortunately, my parents' relationship has none of those qualities. My parents are in their early 60s, and they've been married for over 30 years. As far back as I can remember, I can't recall a time when their relationship hasn't been on the rocks. Their communication patterns are toxic, cycling through explosive fights to brooding silence to brief periods of calm and then back to fighting again. Now, both of them share the blame for this. My mother is manipulative, controlling, and a chronic oversharer. Nothing can be told to her in confidence. For example, whenever my elderly grandparents get a rash, she immediately texts dozens of family members and friends with graphic details and disturbing images, despite numerous requests to stop invading their privacy and flooding our phones with inappropriate content. My dad, on the other hand, is cold and condescending. He is verbally and financially abusive towards my mother, and occasionally their blowups will turn physically violent and he will shove or grab her. Now, as a feminist and just a decent fucking human being, I know that this constitutes abuse and is not okay. I even tried to call him on this as a child, but he simply ignored me. The other piece that complicates all of this is something my premarital counselor labeled emotional incest. Basically, my mom has always used my brothers and I as surrogate partners when it comes to sharing her feelings because she can't do that with my dad. Now, to be clear, there was never any sexual abuse here. It's just that my mom kept sharing things with us about her sex life or arguments with my dad or personal troubles with friends or parents, things that she should have kept to herself because we were small children and she was an adult. Like I said, chronic oversharer. My relationship with my parents is better now than it was when I was a kid, mostly because I have moved halfway across the country and don't have to see them on a regular basis anymore. But I recently went home for a visit and my mom told me that she didn't know how she could stay with my dad anymore because he was getting more verbally abusive and had recently shoved her again. I told my mom that she could always divorce him and wouldn't receive any judgment from my brothers and I, but she immediately panicked and said, where would I go? Where would I live? How would I support myself? That sort of thing. So here's my dilemma, Dan. How do I offer support to my mom so she doesn't feel stuck with an abuser without falling into the old patterns of emotional incest that were really scarring to me and took a long time to heal from when I was building my own healthy relationship with my partner? Any advice you can provide would be greatly appreciated. So your fear is that your mom's going to want to move in with you. Is that the unstated fear? <laughs> well, eventually, at some point, who knows? Yeah. You have yeah, siblings, possible. Though, right? <laughs> Yes, I do. And yes. your mother has siblings of her own. There's this large extended family who she's terrorizing with pictures of grandparents' bed sores. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes. So your mom has options other than living with you. Oh, yeah. She's got many options. Absolutely. All she needs to do is ask, for sure. Okay. Well, that's what you tell her. You, you've, it sounds like for your own sanity, <laughs> you've had to like draw a really clear boundary between you and your parents, including some geographical distance. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so when your mom yeah. says, if I leave my dad, if I leave your father, 
I'm going to be destitute, what I'm going to do, you say, well, that's something you need to take into consideration when you contemplate leaving your husband and you need to have a plan and you need to figure that out. You just have to shift Mm. responsibility for that decision and the logistics of that decision onto her shoulders. Do not assume responsibility for any of that. Do not pick up the burden that she's trying to lay at your feet. Yeah, and that's something that's so hard, you know, because you're trying to, you know, I I hear you and I... (laughs) And I know in my mind that's the thing I should do. And then when the conversations actually start happening and, you know, all those old patterns of communications pop up, it's, it's very hard not to take on that burden, you know? There are some people in our lives who it's easier to have conversations about emotionally tricky subjects with via email mm. than on the phone. Mm-hmm. And that can also be a boundary that yeah. you establish with your mother. Right. If you want to talk about the weather or the movies or how grandma and grandpa are doing, we can jump on the phone. Oh, we want to game out the divorce. This is something I need to think about. And so let's have this convo. Yes. Via email, mom. So you can't be emotionally hustled into saying things in the moment because she sounds upset that you right. don't want to be held to ever <laughs> when mm. yeah. shit calms the fuck down. Do your folks have money? Um. Well, that's that's part of the issue. I think is that um, it's mostly one sided on on my dad's side. Uh, so my mom herself doesn't make a lot of money, and I think that's that's part of what scares her to think about leaving. Even though you know we know how we know how divorce works, we know how these fifty fifty splits work. But I think it just scares her to think about starting that process. You know, mm-hmm. well, she won't be mm-hmm. destitute if she you know if right exactly half of what her husband has. Get in the house, right. getting some alimony for That's a while, how it works, yeah. Which is how it works. Yeah. So when she says, where will I go? What will I do? How will I live? All you have to say is division of marital property is how you will right. live. And you will buy yourself a condo or something or you'll move in with your parents or your siblings and help right. out with your pile of money that you will get as a settlement when you divorce my mm. awesome father or however you talk about your, father, <laughs> right. talk to your mom about your dad. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, if she's if if her emotionally manipulative, uh, emotionally abusive, emotional intimacy shit show involves saying like sad and desperate things that then put you page mm. into a corner where you have to say things to, to comfort her that then she's going to hold yeah. you to or attempt to hold you to. Just don't play along. Mm. And it's easier to, to not play along with that kind of shit with an emotionally manipulative relative, particularly a parent. If it's not a live conversation, if it's not face-to-face, if it's not on the phone, keep it on email. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Good luck. I'm really sorry. It's a tough position to be in. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I'm being very, I, yeah. it sounds really simple coming out of my mouth, but it's a lot harder yeah. to, to be in your shoes, I know. But right. this is how you make Putting it work. It you just have to hold yourself to yes. it. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's reassuring to hear, you know, that I, <laughs> I'm not in charge of, other people's relationships, success or, you know, or destruction, even if they're my parents, that that's something I don't need to, you know, put on myself to, to make sure that they're successful in their marriage. (laughs) And your mom's an adult and she has to live with the consequences of the choices that she's made or is about to make or is contemplating. And she has to shift for herself. She has to provide for herself and get a roof over her own head. Mm-hmm. There's a point at which you may become the parent of your parents in your adult life, but it doesn't come at 25 when your parents are in their right. 40s or 50s. <laughs> it comes at 55. Yeah. Right. So don't be conned into being your mom's dad. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Good luck. Well, thank you, Dan. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old, single, cisgender, heterosexual female um, who lives in a large southern city. And my question is, do I need to, like, I truly feel like I'm a person who would benefit from a monogamish type relationship structure. And what I'm wondering is if I, is that a thing that I need to roll out, like, from the get-go if I'm dating or is that a thing that like you should wait a month or two before you tell someone that you think you need? Like, for example, I pretty consistently throughout my 10-ish years of dating people like get bored after about three months of being with the same person. So I feel like I would benefit from a monogamish situation, but also maybe I just haven't found the right person. It's one of the things where I just don't really know. You know that campaign, The More You Know? I think we need a different one for the whole monogamy, non-monogamy thing when it comes to people's journey into self-awareness. The more you know, not that it would be now that you know, now that you know yourself well enough to know that a monogamous commitment isn't something that you're capable of honoring because you've cheated when you've made monogamous commitments and after three months in any new relationship, you start to chafe against the restrictions and you want to fuck somebody else. And in the past you've gone ahead and fucked somebody else, even though you're in a committed relationship, you now know, you now know that you shouldn't be making monogamous commitments because you're incapable of honoring or keeping them. That doesn't mean you are failing at monogamy. It means the monogamous model failed you. It's not something you should be attempting because it's not something that you are good at, that makes you happy, that you're capable of, and that's neutral. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with monogamy not being for you. There's only something wrong if you're making monogamous commitments because you're not self-aware enough to know you're incapable of honoring them if you continue to make those monogamous commitments and then to violate them and then to betray people and then to break the hearts of people who are making and capable of honoring monogamous commitments. So yeah, a non-monogamous relationship is the right kind of relationship for you. And if you are running out and cheating at 12 weeks, that's something you might want to disclose early on in a relationship. Not that you're going to cheat at 12 weeks, but that you are not interested in a sexually exclusive relationship over the long haul. You can be a little vague at you know the second or third date or the second or third week, what you mean by the long haul, but you should be very clear about that. The right guy for you is going to be a guy who doesn't want a monogamous commitment from the woman that he's with and may not want to make a monogamous commitment himself. And those guys are out there. There are guys who identify as cucks who would like to have a partner, a girlfriend, or a wife who's free to sleep with other men while he is completely faithful to her. So if you're one of those people who would like to have sex with many partners and have a partner who only has sex with you, although that from the outside can seem unfair to others, that is also an option that is available to you. Also, there are a lot of people out there who want monogamish or non-monogamous, or open or poly relationships, and more and more of them are self-aware enough to be out seeking that at the outset. Now, don't beat yourself up for the monogamous commitments that you've made in the past. Almost everyone out there in non-monogamy land started out in monogamy, started out trying to do this monogamous thing because that's what good people do, and everyone likes to think of themselves as a good person. And so everyone is sort of hustled early in life into monogamy. And some people are perfectly happy there and perfectly content there and it's frictionless and it's easy for them and it's right for them. But a lot of people 
it is frictionful and not easy and not right for them. And they keep shitting the bed. They keep failing at monogamy or as I like to think of it, monogamy keeps failing for them. So now that you know, the solution to your problem is simple. Stop making monogamous commitments. Find a guy or two or three who also don't want to make monogamous commitments and live happily ever after. Hi, Dan. My partner and I have been together for almost six years and married for one and a half. We're both pretty young. I'm 27 and she's 25. She's also never dated anybody before me. Our relationship hasn't been great for the last couple of years as our needs for love and support haven't been met. On top of this, and maybe in part because of this, we've always found it hard uh, to positively resolve disagreements despite actively trying. It feels like we're speaking different languages. We also don't have many shared interests or hobbies to fall back on and don't align well in our physical expressions of love. I feel like I don't need a partner, but the one I do would ideally, among other things, share my excitement for exploration, be passionate about taking care of their body, and naturally give and receive love in uh, ways that complement mine. My wife wants to make this work, but I just can't shake the feeling that we're not right for each other. I'm trying to explain this to her, but she doesn't see it, despite our relationship being just as shitty for her, if not more. I want to avoid pushing for a divorce without her agreement that that's a reasonable course of action. I'm also open to changing my mind and trying, but so far I can't think of a great reason other than the commitment that I made. What do I do? So you were 20, 21, and your wife was 18 or 19 when you guys got together six years ago. And what you've learned over the intervening six years and the last two years of your marriage is that you aren't right for each other, that you aren't a match. And it sure sounds like you have withdrawn. You are no longer investing in this relationship because you don't see a future with your wife and you are humoring your wife because she hopes to still have a future with you, not with you, the person that you are, but the commitment that she made. She would like to have a future with the commitment that she made, not so much with you, but with that. And so the divorce is inevitable because the more your wife doubles down on wanting to stay in this relationship, the more committed she is to the commitment, the more you're going to pull back. You're already pulling back because there isn't a sexual connection, an intellectual connection, a lifestyle connection, and it doesn't make you happy. The marriage doesn't make you happy. The longer you wait to do the inevitable, the longer you wait to pull the plug, the more painful it's going to be for your wife because the more years she's going to have sunk into this relationship and the older she's going to be and the older you're going to be. Don't fuck around. If you know it's over and you sure sound like you know it's over, end it. Rarely in human romantic relationships does an end come by perfect mutual agreement. People like to talk about amicable partings. People like to talk about conscious decouplings. But it's usually one person who's the driver, one person who forces the issue and ends the relationship by withdrawing finally from it. And the other person accepts that and then it becomes an amicable parting and then it becomes a conscious decoupling. But when you're in the throes of it, if what you're waiting for is for both of you to be on the same page is for consensus between two people about ending a relationship. You could be in this marriage for 10 more years, 15 more years, 20 more years. You're going to have to over up and do what must be done. Do what you know you must do, not only in your own self-interest, but in your wife's self-interest. She doesn't make you happy. She's not the right partner for you. You don't make her happy. You're not the right partner for her. You two both need to get out there and find new partners. So even if it causes her pain initially, when you 
withdraw finally when you pull the plug, when you initiate this divorce, you'll be doing her a favor in the long run. You will be providing her joy down the road when she meets and falls in love with and partners with a man who's a better match for her than you are. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 28-year-old straight woman, and uh, I'm from California. Me and my, I guess, college fuck buddy, where we both had a lot of back-and-forth emotions, never really happened anything. Well, we haven't really seen each other for years, but there's always been that kind of lingering, you know, what if. And about a year ago, he got engaged and I got engaged and, well, now we've been talking and we met at a bar and we wound up kind of hooking up. Um, not completely, and there's still a lot of lingering sexual tension there, and we may meet again, we may not, and I just feel fucking awful about it. Um, I, by the way, I am broken up at this point from my engaged partner. Um, I just, I don't know what to do because I am just so freaking attracted to this guy and we said we would do it once and just never do it again just how how awful of a human being am i here uh i don't know okay thanks i don't know how awful a person you are but i do think i know what you were doing when you reached out to your ex buck buddy from college and met up for drinks and then incompletely hooked up you hooked up but not completely not entirely hooked up you nearly hooked up you hooked up a little you were slamming your hand down on the eject button, on the self-destruct button. You wanted clearly out of the engagement that you just entered into and you engineered an excuse to get – I don't know if your uh, fiancé, your former fiancé found out about the fact that you hooked up with or nearly hooked up with this guy and that led to the end of the engagement or just hooking up with this guy and realizing how attracted to him you still were prompted you to end the engagement because you weren't as into the man you were – had agreed to marry, you were about to marry as you are still into your ex fuck buddy from college. We don't know what's up with him though. Was he slamming his hand down on the self destruct button on the eject button? Does he want out of his engagement? Is that what you meant to him? That's what he meant to you. It seems was that what you meant to him? You should ask him. He suggested you do it once and get it out of your systems. And that's, Often not the way it goes. You can do it once and get it out of your system if the sex is lousy and you're not attracted to that person or you realize you don't like how they taste or smell or they're lousy in bed. But doing it once with someone that you're crazy attracted to, that you have a history with, that you have a great sexual rapport with, you're going to want to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. So you need to have a conversation with this guy about what it is that he wants you were engaged to someone else when you guys nearly hooked up recently. He was engaged to someone else and is still engaged to someone else. Is he serious about that person? Or is reaching out to you with his tongue in the car, I guess, after that drink in the bar, is that his way of trying to dig himself out of his engagement? This catalyzed for you, this hookup with him for you resulted in the end of your engagement. What's up with him? That's what you need to know before you start fucking this guy again. 
not just one time fucking this guy, but very likely, particularly from the same city, fucking this guy over and over and over again. Get some clarity from your fuck buddy about what he wants, what you mean to him, what you symbolize before you make a decision going forward about whether you're going to fuck this guy. It sounds like you want this guy. It sounds like you want to be with him. And if that's what you want, put that out there. If he doesn't want to be with you, it's not what he wants. If you aren't the out that he was looking for or a reason to get out, don't keep fucking him. Don't see him ever again. Hey, Dan. I'm a Canadian woman in my early 20s, and I recently had an interaction with a guy that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. I was someone I was just talking to um, really early stages of like possibly dating or seeing, and he told me if I was to get involved with him, I would have to agree to his circuit, which meant that um, for his job, he travels a lot really consistently and doesn't really have a home base. So he said he has women in different cities where he goes to that he like sleeps with and um, get uses like a rotation. And he wanted me to be one of these girls um, in the city where I live. And um, he would basically circuit through us. Um, when he told me this, I was really appalled and like kind of disgusted. I was like, you know, you're being passed around and um, not interested. Uh, but I was thinking about it after, and I'm like, he says he's being honest with these girls. Um, like, is this a guy that just doesn't respect women and he's using them? Or, like, is this fine and I'm not being open-minded enough? And, yeah, would love to hear your opinion. So this guy has a girl in every port. In every city on his professional circuit, he has a girlfriend that he has sex with, that he hangs out with, that he sees when he's in that location. And... Everything is above board and he was perfectly honest with you and he disclosed this to you before you became intimate and he didn't lead you on or romance you or lie to you. He was completely straightforward. So yeah, he is not a jerk. He is not an asshole. He is who he is and he conducts his love life in this unique fashion and you can opt in and be his whatever city you live in girlfriend. You can be his Chicago girlfriend or you can tell him that that's not a position that you're interested in filling or allowing him to fill you in that position and thank him for his time and thank him for his honesty and let him recruit someone else in the city where you live to be the girl in that particular port. Is he an asshole because he's having a lot of sex with a lot of different people? No, he's not an asshole because he's having a lot of sex with a lot of different people. He's being honest. He's being straightforward. He's being direct. He was seeking your informed consent. He was giving you all the information that you needed to make an informed choice about whether he was someone that you wanted to be involved with or not. So definitely not an asshole. Sex phobia, multi-partner phobia, that might lead people who weren't very thoughtful about sex or relationships to conclude that the guy's an asshole, that he's selfish because he's having sex with a lot of people, and that is ipso facto bad? No, that's not ipso facto bad. Dishonesty, violence, neglect, hostility. There are people out there who have just one sex partner their entire life, who they treat like shit, who they abuse emotionally or physically, sexually, and they're terrible, even though they just have one sex partner. There are people out there with multiple sex partners, multiple concurrent sex partners. They treat with respect and kindness and compassion and they have a great time with. 
And they are good people. They are not jerks. They are not assholes. And of course, there are people out there with one sex partner and it's a great and wonderful and rewarding relationship and everyone treats each other well. And there are people out there with multiple sex partners who treat all of their sex partners like shit. You just can't tell whether someone's an asshole or not based on the number of people that they happen to be with at this or any other given moment in the course of their lives. But in the case of this guy, I'm ruling not an asshole. Did everything right. Gave you the information that you needed to make an informed choice. And now you get to make that choice. And if he's not right for you, there's nothing kink shamey or multi-partner shamey about you saying, yeah, that's not for me. I don't want to be with a guy who has 10 other girlfriends in 10 other cities. It's not the kind of relationship that I want. So he's not an asshole for conducting himself in this way. You're not an asshole for not wanting to be his girl in this particular port. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a young 20-something in the Seattle area. I get really cold during intercourse and like to have my socks on. And I have been called out by more than one lover. Honestly, if I'm being completely honest on this love cast, three different lovers have asked me to take my socks off while we're having sex. And I honestly don't want to because I get too cold. Am I wrong for wanting to keep my socks on? Is that gross? I've had a lot of different guys because I identify as a straight, cisgendered woman. Am I gross for wanting to keep my socks on during intercourse? I feel kind of self-conscious. I could take them off, but also I get too cold and it's not as pleasurable for me. The next time a guy asks you to take your socks off, you tell him that you are likelier to have an orgasm with your socks on and science says so. A Dutch study in 2005 found that women who had difficulty achieving orgasm when given socks were much likelier to have an orgasm. The researcher's name was Gert Holstig, MD, PhD, and he found, according to Elite Daily, that socks promote warmth and comfort, feelings associated with calming a woman's amygdala and prefrontal cortex, the brain areas responsible for anxiety, fear, and danger signals. Going on, before the researchers gave their participants socks, only 50% of them admitted to having an orgasm. After being given a pair of socks, 80% reported reaching an orgasm. So you are self-medicating with socks to make yourself more orgasmic or likelier to climax during sexual intercourse. So you should wear your socks proudly. And any boy who tells you to take your socks off, you should tell him to put his back on and get the fuck out. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old gay man living in Arkansas, and I was calling because uh, I have a question about a person that's essentially a fuck buddy of mine. Um, we met on Grindr a few months back um, when I was living on my own in another city about an hour away from my hometown. Um, he's 60 years old. I'm 24, but that's actually not the issue I'm calling about anyway, you know, so we've been meeting up and we've been, you know, um, messing around, jacking each other off and stuff like that. It's really hot and everything, but, um, uh, I found, uh, in recent months that he's been quite callous about other things going on in my life. The most recent was, um, I recently had to move back in with my parents back in my hometown because of financial issues. I actually ended up filing bankruptcy. Um, last week when I moved, I actually, um, he actually messaged me asking, you know, to meet up for, you know, fucking. Um, and I told him, well, I can't this week cause I'm actually moving. And he was like, 
oh, and then he sends me another text message and he's like, oh, well, do you still want to meet up? And I'm like, no, I'm moving. And I've also tried to explain to him about the bankruptcy and stuff like that. And he just, he doesn't seem interested. And in fact, he, um, he actually kind of made fun of me that, you know, I'm so young and here I am, you know, 24 year old filing, filing bankruptcy and having to move back in with my parents. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. Like, I don't already feel like enough of a loser. You know, he's really hot and I, you know, I'm kind of overweight, so I don't think I'd ever find anyone, you know, a fuck buddy as hot as him again in my entire life. So I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I should just dump the motherfucker already. I mean, I don't even know if I can dump a fuck buddy. That's even, you know, something that can be done. But anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts of you know, if I'm entitled to feel offended by a fuck buddy or if, you know, this is just, you know, he's just the fuck buddy. So I really shouldn't get uh, too emotionally involved with him. I was offended recently by someone sitting next to me on an airplane playing music too loudly into their headphones and disturbing me when I was trying to read. And I had no emotional relationship with that person. I was never going to see that person ever again in my life. And I was offended by them. So you absolutely have a right to be offended by your asshole fuck buddy who at a difficult moment in your life when you're going through something incredibly stressful reached out and dumped salt into that wound. So yeah, you should be offended. You have a right to be offended. What he did was objectively inconsiderate and objectively offensive. Be offended. Be angry. Dump the motherfucker already. Even though he's just a fuck buddy, dump him. Fuck buddy. Remember what they call that in straight land? Friend with benefits. That's what the straight decoder ring turned fuck buddy into when straight people started acting more like gay people. And one of the duties of a friend with benefits, the first thing in that title is friend. And if this guy, this fuck buddy of yours can't be your buddy, he can't be kind to you, he can't be nice, he can't be a friend to you, then you shouldn't be fucking him or benefiting him. You say he's hot. You say you're overweight. You say you're concerned that you'll never find anyone as hot as he is ever again. Okay, well, that's the kind of thinking that emotionally abusive hot assholes rely on so that they can trap someone, so that they can abuse someone, so they can be cruel to someone and keep that person coming back. It's a way of you affirming how hot he apparently is. He punches you in the face. You come crawling back to him and he gets to tell himself, wow, I must be really hot because I am being shitty to this person and they keep crawling back to me. You're stroking his ego. He's leveraging your low self-esteem against you to benefit and stroke his asshole ego. Don't play along. Don't play that game. There are other men out there in the world. You found this guy. You can find other guys. Maybe he's thinner. Maybe he's got, uh, by currently reigning beauty standards, a quote-unquote better body than you do, you have youth. That's a kind of power, and that's a kind of advantage that he does not enjoy. And you have decades ahead of you to find other guys, have other fuck buddies, have other relationships. You have decades ahead of you to, if you want to lose some weight, if you want to hit the gym and get healthier, doesn't mean everybody has to be an Adonis, you can do that. You have time. You have something he doesn't have. Maybe he has abs right now and you don't, but you have decades right now and he doesn't. So buck the fuck up and don't be his punching bag and don't tell yourself that you can't do any better. You know what's better than being with someone who mistreats you? 
being alone is better than being with someone who mistreats you. Because when you're alone, you can do what you want. You can jack off all the time. You can get out there in the world. You can pursue your interests. And you can meet other people. And you will be available emotionally, sexually, to whoever might come along that you realize you have a mutual attraction toward. So, yeah, to hell with that old faggot. I say that as an old faggot myself. Get the fuck away from him. Block him on your phone. Have nothing to do with him. And enjoy the next five or six decades of your life. And content yourself with the fact that he will not be enjoying nearly as many decades to come as you will be. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because there are researchers and scientists out there working tirelessly to uncover the secrets of human sexuality and of relationships. And every once in a while, we like to invite one of those researchers or scientists onto the show to share the results of their newly published study for a little segment we call What You Got. So joining us by phone for This What You Got, Dr. Samantha Joel, assistant professor at the University of Utah. Hey, Dr. Joel. Hi, it's so great to be here, Dan. It's so great to have you. So you did some research. You have a new paper out. What you got? What's it about? Yeah, that's right. So so we know that the decision to end a relationship can be agonizing. Um, I think you once wrote, Dan, that if you weren't careful, you could fill every column with, should I stay or should I go, types of questions. Yeah. Uh, so we know people spend a lot of time deliberating and struggling with this decision. They, they do. I, actually, I coined DTMFA to describe these questions, because usually what I get isn't whether I should stay or go, but people who obviously need to go right in. He's lovely. I really like him. We get along in so many ways. He set me on fire. He punched my dog. He kicked my mother in the face. I don't know what to do. And of course, you need to dump the motherfucker already is what you need to do. But people need that push. People really do struggle with the decision to pull the fucking plug on a relationship. And that's what you were looking into? Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in why these decisions are so difficult for people and you know, what exactly is it that people are deliberating about? What are the specific relationship issues that make it so hard? Can I jump in? Yes. Just let, I want to say what I think the problem is and then you can tell me what you found and we'll see if they line up. That sounds great. I think a lot of people have a hard time ending a relationship because they're in terror of being alone and they feel like the culture sends this message that if you're not partnered – you're a loser. And so they'd rather stay in a shit relationship than be single. I mean, we actually have data to support that. Um, my colleague, Steph Spielman, has actually constructed a scale, the fear of being single scale, uh, and, it, and it does predict settling. So there's data to support, to support that. Is that what your study found? Well, we did find that fear of uncertainty and fear of being alone were some reasons people mentioned uh, why they wanted to stay in their relationship, but they weren't the most common reasons. Um, so, so I'll tell you what we did. We, uh, my colleagues Jeff McDonald, Liz Page Gould, and I, we decided to take a bottom-up approach. So minimal assumptions. Uh, we recruited people anonymously online who are actively trying to decide whether to break up with someone. And we just asked them, you know, off the record, what's making you want to stay? What's making you want to leave? And we coded their answers. Mm -hmm. And so the reasons for wanting to leave that they gave were exactly the sort of things that come up in your column that make you say DTMSA. Um, so the most common reason to leave was stuff about the partner that you can't stand. Uh, so they're, they're lazy, they're unreliable, they're inconsiderate. Uh, the second was a breach of trust such as cheating or some other kind of deception or betrayal. Mm -hmm. and, and then the third was 
more about the partner and the sense that the partner had withdrawn from the relationship. So they're not really there for you anymore. Or you don't feel like you're a priority for them. Right. So those are the reasons people might be contemplating ending the relationship. What is it that people struggle yeah. with when it's actually time to pull the plug? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's what, what most interested me was that people had these perfectly valid reasons to leave, like you said, and like you've seen. Uh, but then at the same time, they had these reasons to stay. So over 50% of people said they wanted to stay for the emotional intimacy. So despite all of these problems in the relationship, they still felt like they had a real connection or a bond with their partner. They felt in love with their partner. Uh, the second reason, which I think comes up on your, in your columns a lot as well, is investment. So they'd say, well, I've already put so much into this relationship. We've been through so much together. We've shared all these experiences together. You know, what a waste it would be to leave now. The sunk cost fallacy applied to relationships. Exactly. Uh, and then the third reason was a sense of obligation to stay. Um, this often came up for people who had families. So because you have kids or maybe you're married and you feel like divorce is wrong, uh, you know, some kind of moral obligation to stay. Mm-hmm. Or your partner's dependent on you uh, financially or is in not great health. And even though the relationship is very rewarding, you'd feel like you'd be perceived as a monster if you walked out on them now. Yes. Yeah, the partner's feelings also came up, and I actually have another line of work looking at that, that people often stay in unsatisfying relationships because they don't want to hurt the partner. Um, But then the question there, of course, is, so, but are you actually doing the partner any favors? Because, you know, who wants to be in a relationship with someone who's just going through the motions? I feel like the kinder thing to do really is to you know, break up and let them find someone else. Although I guess it depends on the circumstances, I, how, I've been, like why they need you. But uh, speaking of someone who's in a 24 year long relationship, there are times where you go through the motions. You know, I, I worry that sometimes, you know, I'm often in the position where I'm telling people to dump the motherfucker already to pull the plug. Cause this relationship is oddly so awful. But often when people say, you know, he or she does this, this and this, and it drives me crazy, or there was this betrayal or, you know, it feels like we're just going through the motions right now. Often in those circumstances, I encourage people to stick it out for a little bit longer. There's always going to be things about your next partner that are going to drive you crazy. There's no finding a partner who will not have personality traits or habits that drive you crazy. The, the trick is to learn to pretend those don't exist or look past them or roll with them, not to convince yourself there's someone out there who isn't going to fart in bed or pick their teeth at the table or... I, I don't know. There's always going to be something. And, you know, betrayals, people in long-term relationships who are welded to each other, there are going to be moments that where forgiveness is required for the, the relationship to survive. And you have to ask yourself whether, you know, stomping out because of this wrong and you were you're legitimately wronged and you deserve an apology and the person should be in the doghouse. But stomping out because of a wrong saying you could never forgive someone for doing X, Y or Z to me mm-hmm. sounds like writing the death warrant for a relationship before it even starts. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. In every long-term relationship, there are going to be rough patches. There are going to be going through lulls. the motion patches. Yes, and I guess the real question is, you know, trying to suss out whether something is a temporary rough patch or kind of you know chronic unhappiness, and, mm-hmm. and trying to tease those things apart. Right, and I don't What's want people to stay in relationships that make them miserable or they're chronically unhappy, or you know, and there are cases where the person who's doing the things that driving you crazy is upping the ante because they're trying to get you to break up with them. And so it, that get, does happen. it escalates and gets worse and worse because they don't have the ova to just dump you to, to end it themselves. So they just make you fucking miserable until you end it. Then they get to swan around playing the victim because they're the ones who got dumped. 
yeah, and you know, rejecting people is hard. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. Uh, I think you can absolutely wind up in a situation where two people are both pretty miserable, um, but they're both justifying to themselves why this isn't something that they can do to their partner right now. I think you can wind up with a really ironic situation. So you looked into the uh, thought process around ending a relationship, what pe- the factors people are weighing. Does, does your study, the, the one that you just brought out, does it come to any conclusions about whether or not you should end a relationship or what percentage of awfulness, uh, you know, or at what point the percentage of awfulness is so great that you ought to end the relationship? Or is it not that kind of study? Is it not prescriptive in that way? At this point, I, the research is really at its infancy. I can't say when the red flags are bad enough that someone should um, should end it, whether someone should end it or not. These data don't speak to that. Um, but I will say that there are many studies suggesting that a bad relationship is generally worse than no relationship um, in terms of happiness and health. And so the trick is to determine, well, how bad is it, right? I think the main takeaway from this study is that People felt deeply ambivalent about the decision. They felt torn and, well, this is consistent with other, well, actually, I'd like to pose a question to you, Dan, if I may. Okay. But, but, uh, for, because, but first, can, can I say to everyone out yes. there listening, that I think is important because a lot of people who feel really torn feel like they're the only ones who are struggling with this feeling of stay or go, uh, this you know, desire to leave, you know, and this ambivalence about it or being on the rack about that decision. I hear from people all the time who you know, have watched other people break up and think, well, everybody seems to be capable of doing this except me. And you just never know how many people are staying in relationships and in the same place that you are. Just like, ah, should I stay or go? I'm miserable, but I can't live without them. Or I'm miserable, but I don't want to be alone because then I'm a loser. Uh, so to everybody out there, that conflict, that internal conflict is not your personal hell. It's everybody's hell from time to time. Exactly. And I think it's a lot harder for someone who's in the relationship than someone who's looking at the relationship from the outside and sees the problems but doesn't feel the constraints. Um, But yeah, the question I wanted to pose, uh, because you get thousands of emails from people struggling with Mm -hmm. relationship decisions. What do you think is harder for people to do? Uh, Getting into relationships or getting back out of them? Uh, I think getting out can be harder than getting in because of the sunk cost fallacy, because of that fear of being alone, because of you know so many people who are in relationships and aren't rewarding or that are making them miserable and they worry will always make them miserable, that it's never going to revive. Uh, they remember often how miserable they were when they were single and looking and they think, well, maybe this misery in the relationship is a lesser misery than the misery of getting back on fucking Tinder. Yes. And so I think it's harder for people uh, to leave than to get in. Which is why, you know, which is why I'm in the business that I'm in, and which is why there are advice (laughs) columnists like me and Purdy and Abby and everybody else, where 80% of the mail is just, you could just write a column every week or every day that's like, all right, break up with the asshole. Break up with break up with her. Bitch, be crazy. You gotta break up with her. That that guy's a fucking bastard. You gotta break (laughs) up with him. I could do that and nothing else and just phone it in. You have to cherry pick questions that just don't end there. Otherwise, your column gets really fucking tedious. And okay, yeah, and I, I thought you would say that, and that's that's very much what I found in my data and in the literature is that for many people, relationships seem to be relatively easy to get into and then really difficult to get back out of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so particularly, like, particularly if you've yeah. scrambled your DNA together, particularly if you're on a lease together, if you were dumb enough to 
buy a dog together uh, and premature commitments, you know, signing the lease too early, adopting the dog together too early. That can really up the stakes and make it much harder to leave. What, what is the name of the paper and where can people find it if they want to follow up and read uh, the results of your research themselves? The paper is called Wanting to Stay and Wanting to Go, and it's published in Personality and Social Psychology Science. Dr. Samantha Joel, Assistant Professor at the University of Utah, thank you for joining us. I hope you'll come back on next time you have a, a, a new bit of research to share with us. Thank you, Dan. Hey, Dan. I don't um, exactly know how to describe my situation right now. I'm a 32-year-old cis straight male, and I just finished graduate school, and my only option right now is living with my mother, who as a child was sexually abusive and as an adult is just a generally abusive alcoholic. My sister lives in the same area as my mom. She can't acknowledge any of the problems that she has. And I feel like I'm going insane. None of these things are things that my mom and I have talked about, but for instance, tonight, which is a normal night for us, she got home after a bad day at work, screamed at me for a while until I was sobbing. And then I somehow ended the night cleaning out her car. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck here. I just finished a very illustrious graduate graduate program and all my peers are off doing really cool things and I'm living in a fucking house with the person who was supposed to be my fucking parent who has always been anything but and I'm fucking it's very upsetting I don't know what to do another toxic mom listen move you've got to get out of your mother's house get out of that toxic environment get away from that toxic person who happens to be one of your parents. If you have friends that will allow you to couch surf through their places for a few months while you figure it out, figure out your next move, do that. If you can cheaply rent a room and get some shitty job that pays just enough to pay for that room, do that. If you can't move, if you can't extricate yourself from this terrible living situation, make a plan. That can keep you sane while you endure this bullshit from your mother have a plan that you're working toward. Start saving up money so that you have first month, last month, and a security deposit so you can get your own apartment, get a second or third job, even a shitty one, to save that money up so that you are working toward getting the fuck away from your awful, abusive, emotionally and sexually abusive parent. And that can keep you sane. If you're even taking tiny baby steps toward that goal, that can help you get out of this situation alive and with your sanity. But if you can get out right fucking now, if there is a place you can go, if there is a sibling you can crash with, if there is a good friend with a empty room in their basement that they would rent to you for cheap, do it. Get the fuck out. Anything, any living situation would be preferable to the living situation that you are stuck in right now. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to make a comment on episode 563 for the woman who wants to be hunted by her partner 
girl, there is porn for this. There is a fabulous feminist artsy porn director named Erica Lust, who you can check out online, and she has at least two films that I know of that might be up your alley. The titles you're looking for are Horny Beasts and Hunt Me, Catch Me, Eat Me. There are animal masks, there's chasing, and there's lots of sex. Go watch the trailers, and if you like them, you can buy them and give yourself some ideas of where to start. Have fun. Hello, this is sort of a yes and for the woman who just called who wants to be ravished by her new play partner. You should also consider wearing disposable clothing so he can rip them off you. And then come over to my house and let him play with me because that sounds super fun. Hi, Dan. This is a message for the woman who doesn't want her daughter wearing a leather choker. I can guarantee you that your daughter knows what the deal is with the choker. She knows it's associated with BDSM, and that is the attraction of wearing it in the first place. That's what makes it transgressive. It's subculture. It's rebellious and sexy. And she knows, she knows, she knows. I promise your daughter will grow out of the goth thing or not. I practically lived in my bondage pants the entire time that I was in high school, but I managed to get through the entire phase having never had to have a conversation with my mother about the definition of BDSM or how my fashion choices were provoking the male gaze. And I think we are both better for it. Take heart. Uh, someday your daughter will look back at those school photos of herself and think, I can't believe my mother let me leave the house. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Impeach the motherfucker already. www.itmfa.org. Go get some gear and help us raise money for the International Refugee Assistance Project, the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Samantha Joel on Twitter at DatingDecisions. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.